electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Brian. We'll see you soon. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks are on track for some pretty big weekly gains, despite the biggest jump in inflation in nearly 40 years. And despite all the nasty-sounding headlines today, bond yields are moving lower. We will try to make sense of it all. And bonds might be shrugging it off, but restaurants are certainly not. We're going to look at who's feeling the most inflation pain and which stocks are best positioned to still weather the storm. And an earnings exchange, three key names reporting next week. Stay tuned. Maybe you can guess what they are. But first, Dom Chu with today's market. What a Dom. curious one, Kelly, to your point there. I mean, stocks rising, you can maybe make a case for it. Why are bonds rising as well if inflation is so hot? Anyway, we have markets right now in the green predominantly, though off their session highs right now. The Dow Industrial is up about one quarter of 1%, roughly 90 points, 35,843 the last trade. The S&P 500 still below 4,700, still though 25 points to the upside. That's about half of 1%, 4,693. And then 15,569 for the composite, up 50 points, about one third of 1%. So again, modest moves higher, but generally speaking, not bad when you've got inflation running at the hottest levels in nearly 40 years. Let's talk about those bond yields that Kelly just referenced, because if you can believe it, those yields are now below one and a half percent, 1.47 for the benchmark U.S. 10-year Treasury note yield. Why is it important? Because somebody is willing to pay a price that gets them 1.47 percent interest for 10 years when inflation right now is running at six to seven percent on an annualized basis. I mean, maybe, I don't know, some people are trying to, trying to figure out why that dynamic is playing out the way that it is. Certainly something to watch ahead of a big Fed interest rate policy meeting next week. And then speaking of inflation, there have been a number of downgrades of Southwest Airlines over the course of the past couple of days, tied mostly to their investor day and some of the outlook issues that they have. Southwest is down another 4% today, down about 10% for the year. It's been a steady decline from the highs. One of the reasons why many of these analysts have taken down their view of Southwest, Kelly, has, because, has been because they feel as though Southwest is not as equipped as some of its peers in the airline business to withstand some of the inflationary pressures that are going to be at play. So Southwest cut to sell today by Goldman Sachs, the latest guys to do so. We'll see what happens here with Southwest. I'll send things back over to you. Second session in a row, they're getting hit. Dom, thank you very much. Now to some new numbers from the CDC on those first cases of Omicron in the U.S. What are we learning about them? Meg Terrell standing by with the details. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, the CDC just took a look at 43 of the first cases of this variant in the United States, uh, putting together some of the characteristics that are emerging now, although it is still early days. Um, What they found is that 34 of those 43 folks, or almost 80 percent, were fully vaccinated. Uh, And of those, 14 were boosted. Uh, Six people who were infected had prior infections with COVID. Now, the most common symptoms among these folks were cough, fatigue, and congestion or runny nose. Now, only one of 
of these people was hospitalized and just for two days, no deaths have been reported to date from people who've had Omicron. Uh, the CDC cautioning, though, quote, even if most infections are mild, a highly transmissible variant could result in enough cases to overwhelm health systems. And Kelly, some of the emerging data we're getting from places like the UK do show us just how quickly Omicron can spread. So even though it looks pretty mild right now and it does look like protection is provided uh, by vaccination, if not against infection, at least against severe disease, this is still a pretty concerning looking variant at this point. Kelly. All right, Meg, thank you very much for bringing us those numbers. Our Meg Terrell. Turning back to inflation now, prices rising at their fastest pace in nearly 40 years. Steve Leesman here with a closer look at what today's numbers are telling us. Steve. Kelly, yeah, the November report underscores that the inflation we have in this country is rising. It's persistent and it's widespread. The 6.8 percent headline number just over expectations, but marking the highest rate of the consumer price index since 1982. Even when you take out food and energy, the core rate is up 4.9 percent year over year, the fastest pace since 1991 and of more interest to the Fed there. If you ask what's going up, the answer is everything or almost everything. Gas up 58 percent annually. Used car prices, 31 percent. Food up 6.4% and clothing 5%. The rising cost of housing belatedly now working into the CPI as are higher wages. The cost of services, X-Energy rising 3.5%. There could be more to come. Many economists see more wage and housing inflation on the way, driving up inflation even if those supply bottlenecks end up clearing. Yet markets appear to be braced for this report and maybe even worse. Yields fell on the news and stocks rallied. There was little change in the outlook for the Fed. Markets continue to expect the first rate hike in May, a second one in September. And then you can see there with a 57% probability, a third one in December. Stephen Stanley at Amherst Pierpont writing, sort of talking about what Dom Chu was saying, aggressive short-term expectations and an exceedingly dovish longer run outlook is likely needed to be reckoned with in 2022, or the contrast between the two. So if inflation remains high in the spring and fails to show signs of easing by summer, the Fed could turn more hawkish more quickly. The question is if markets price that in even sooner. Kelly? They, they seem to have turned hawkish. It also seems like the Omicron variant, probably the most relevant thing to what happens with prices from here. The more the pandemic sticks around, the the longer I would imagine that all these categories you're talking about could see inflation pressures lasting. You know, Kelly, uh, the market seemed to be reacting like a teenager whose parents just said, oh, I'm really going to get mad now to the Fed because the Fed is like, oh, I'm really going to get hawkish. And the market's like, yeah, 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 bring it on. Three red eggs next year. It's almost a big yawn. It seems like the markets are reacting like at this point. Um, I, I, I think... It may be time to think about something more severe, something more. We have a question, Kelly. I'll give you a preview in our Fed survey for next week. And the question is, um, do you think the Fed is going to have to raise rates above neutral in order to get control of inflation? And I'm really interested in what our respondents think to that question as to whether or not something like, you know, whatever the neutral rate is, two, two and a half percent. Right. Will the Fed have to go above that to control inflation? We don't know that yet, but I'm interested in the answer. And so far, it seems like the markets are almost cheering them on as they 
tilt to slightly more hawkish. Uh, Steve, thank you again. A big week next week if they do accelerate sure. the taper. A whole lot more in store. We'll leave it there for right. now. Steve Leisman covering it all for Thanks. us today. Turning to the market reaction, stocks losing some of their gains and then rebounding this afternoon. The Dow is up about 200 at the open. It's up 119 now. On the other hand, yields have pretty decisively moved lower since that CPI report, the 10-year below 1.5%. Is the market saying that inflation has peaked and will fall from here, or should the signal from bondland just be ignored? Joining me now is Barry James, president of James Investment Research, and Michael Schumacher, head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. I'm going to set Michael up here by letting uh, Barry get the first response, Barry, on, on what emphasis you place on the level of bond yields right now. Well, as, as we're looking at it, it's expectations. That's all it is. If you look at from two years to 30 years, the break-even uh, in terms of inflation is around 2.5%. So that's what everybody has locked in in their brains. If this is the peak in, the, in, in terms of inflation then, uh, and it's going to be heading down, then everything is, uh, is all smiles and we can uh, you know, go to the bank, as it were. If it's not, then I think you know, the Fed is going to be taking the punch bowl away and that could cause some real problems. And I want to turn to you on that, Michael. You're our, our bonds, our rates guru. We, what would you say are the levels to watch from here on the 10-year? Yeah, Kelly, it's interesting. I think that if you get decent upside next week after the Fed, that's probably a telltale sign. So something like 165, 170, if the market happens to get there, I realize it's a bit of a lift. That's a pretty, I wouldn't say dire, but warning signal for the market as year-end approaches, but liquidity is usually pretty poor. We think yields can go up a fair bit from there, but probably pretty gradually. It's not going to be a, just a huge jump up, but something like 10, 15, 20 basis points over the course of a month, maybe a bit more down the road, that sort of thing. Barry, let's talk about some of the places in the market you like. Home Depot, SVB Financial Group, Old Dominion, all names that have already had pretty nice years, but you think this can continue? Yes. Um, and when we're looking at the market, and especially in this inflationary environment, you want companies with pricing power. So you look at their operating margins or their gross profit margins. And if they're able to increase in, in spite of the, the higher prices, uh, then that's a good company. Also looking for real quality. You're not going to try to chase things like, you know, we don't chase the, the junky stuff in, in our golden rainbow fund. Those are the names that we mentioned uh, are in there. What we do try to, to find are the companies that have low debt and they have very solid balance sheets and they're not super expensive. Those are the keys for right now. And uh, those kind of companies uh, in a balanced approach, value growth both. This is going to be a really volatile market is what we believe. This whole thing, this choppiness with inflation and interest rates and Omicron and everything else, it's going to be very, very rotational. And so you want to be balanced. Don't try to put all your money in, in one area. Yeah. Speaking of choppiness, Michael, what do you think it would take for the 10-year to go above 2% at this point? And what impact would that have across the landscape? Yeah, Kelly, I think what it would take at this juncture is for the Fed actually to demonstrate to the market, yeah, we're serious about this tightening thing. Steve Leisman made an excellent point, whether the market's like a teenager or perhaps a young adult, take your pick, but still it's waiting for actual evidence that, <laughs> that the chairman's going to take away the punch bowl. I think it's an excellent analogy, whether it's faster tapering next week or more likely in our view, the Fed teeing up rate hikes. So tapering goes through March, April, something like that. And then maybe in the second quarter of the next year, Chairman Powell says, hey, you know what, this inflation thing, it's still here, it's not going away. 
we're going to hike several times and you all just better get ready for it. It's that kind of evidence from the Fed, we think, that would push yields up quite a bit. Do you think it would be well accepted, Michael, for the Fed to start raising rates as, as early as possibly first, early second quarter of next year while the inflation numbers are rapidly receding from, you know, even today's probably good example, a lot of the whisper number was, oh, we're going to get 7%, didn't quite make it and look at the market's reaction. Right. Yeah, I think the market was actually teed up for a somewhat higher number. But as far as how quickly the Fed might hike, we think the second quarter is too soon for an actual hike. But at that point, Jay Powell and friends can probably start talking about a hike three, four months after that point. So the market's going to have to get accustomed to the notion that maybe a fairly short runway between the end of tapering and rate hikes. Not zero, but three, four, five months. And I think that could be pretty spooky. People have not seen a cycle like this in a long time. All right. And spooky, exactly the landscape Barry's looking for. I appreciate you giving us some ideas for that environment. Barry James, Michael Schumacher, we appreciate your time today. And we have a news alert on Instacart. Our own dear Jabosa breaking the news that the grocery delivery startup is losing its president after just three months on the job. Carolyn Everson came from Facebook as its advertising chief for more than a decade. Her departure comes amid an ongoing shakeup at the top this year that saw the founder and CEO replaced ahead of an expected IPO. You can head over to CNBC.com for the full details. Coming up, we're looking at another inflationary indicator, lumber prices. They've nearly doubled in less than a month. They're still down 40% from their highs. Are we out of the woods and what does it mean for home prices? Plus, investors continue to watch for any commentary around inflation and rising costs. We'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade on Toll, FedEx, and Rivian. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Cisco leading the way and Boeing again a big laggard today. The blue chips on pace to snap a four-week losing streak with their best week since June. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Don't look now, but lumber prices are soaring again. Remember, we started the year around $800 a unit before spiking to record highs in March as lumber became one of the first commodities crunched by supply chain issues. By May, prices peaked at more than $1,700, as you see there, and then they dropped 75% in just three months to $450. But the story didn't end there. 
Since that bottom, prices have suddenly surged again, up more than 70% in just the past month to back above $1,000. What is Lumber now telling us about inflation and the supply chain? Joining me now is Kyle Little, Chief Operating Officer with Sherwood Lumber. Kyle, welcome. It was lumber winter there for a while. What do you make of the latest breakout? It, it definitely was, Kelly. Thank you again for having me. Uh, Lumber uh, continues on this wild ride, uh, something that we've indicated uh, quite a while ago, that this was a cycle, and it was a cycle that was likely going to be much longer than people anticipated and go to prices uh, levels uh, much higher uh, than anticipated as well. Uh, the volatility of the stop-and-go uh, economy that we're in uh, only uh, continues to uh, challenge uh, supply chain and also uh, challenge uh, uh, product getting to the marketplace to meet, the, meet that demand. Uh, demand is unbelievable right now. We continue to see projects uh, uh, picking up into 2022, uh, and we don't really see uh, any end in sight, um, at least for the first half uh, of this uh, coming up year. So to unpack what you just said for a moment there, is it basically that both demand and supply shortages have been the catalyst for the recent move? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of topics a lot of the topic on the demand side has been mostly to new home construction, but I think a lot of people are uh, neglecting to recognize how uh, powerful the repair and remodel and the DIY segment continues to be. As prices uh, declined here in the third quarter of 2021, uh, we definitely saw a change in consumer behavior when they really stopped uh, at those peak prices in early May uh, and June, and uh, it really came back into the marketplace and started to uh, support uh, the adjusted price uh, uh, scenarios. Now that we've gone into um, uh, this, the end of this year and into next year, th that trend has continued. Uh, so we've seen the big boxes uh, that take away at those stores continue to ramp up, uh, as well as uh, in regionally in the marketplace, such as the Northeast, where you have such a uh, such a large uh, existing home uh, a base, which that base is uh, very uh, let's just say uh, aged. And in order to update it, you're going to continue to see uh, continued demand in that repair and remodel. Segment. Yeah, yeah, no, it, absolutely. We see it everywhere. So is this purely a physical goods market or is there an aspect of uh, financialization to it? You know, I'm wondering how much did people pile in, for example, in the earlier drive to the highs? Did financial players get cleared out and who's in the market now? Uh, today in the market, I would say it's more of a traditional market. We followed a more cyclical pattern, but because of the supply chain issues, those moves up and down uh, are just much more, more steep. And so we, uh, I would say we're going to continue to follow a very, very seasonal push. If you remember, uh, we talked about this earlier this year, the push to these two all-time highs started back in Q4 of uh, 2020 uh, and went into uh, Q2. Uh, of, of 21, uh, we're following a very similar uh, pattern again this year. So for all of us who like to look at lumber as maybe a, a window into the broader inflation issues right now, basically you're saying that we've had more volatility than normal and that you think prices will remain about double or more what they were pre-pandemic. Absolutely. And uh, we talk about one and a half to three times more uh, is the new range uh, that lumber will trade uh, until the cycle uh, um, until we see an inflection point in, in a slowing down of the cycle. Yeah, or you can grow a lot more trees. Uh, Kyle, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to check back in with you. Great, Kelly. Thank you. Kyle Little of Sherwood Lumber. And still ahead, a closer look at the restaurant industry, which is dealing with inflation itself between rising costs, higher wages, delivery fees, and squeeze margins. We'll tell you which names are most at risk. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. 
It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Quick check on markets. Dow's up 126, so we're only about 70 points back off session highs, despite briefly turning negative a little bit earlier. The strongest performer is the S&P today, up two-thirds of 1%. Let's check the sectors. And this has been a really strong week for markets, actually, snapping, I think, a four-week losing streak. All 11 sectors are in the green for the week, but technology by far the leader up more than 5%. Materials having a nice time as well, up about 3%. Consumer discretionary adding 2%. Uh, and that's, I think, the biggest laggard. So it tells you about the bread theorem. Here are some of the movers this hour. Apes look away because AMC is set to close at its lowest level since May. After the CEO, Adam Aaron, trimmed his stake, selling about 300,000 shares as part of estate planning. The CFO, meantime, sold virtually all of its of his stock. AMC is on pace for its third straight week of losses. It's now trading under $27 a share. And Beyond Meat is going back to the drawing board after Taco Bell reportedly rejected its plant-based carne asada. The company did not comment on that report, but say they'll continue to work together on plant-based protein options despite today's move, which is a decline of nearly 8%. Beyond Meat is still on pace to snap a four-week losing streak, which is its longest bear uh, stretch, if you want to call it that, in a year and a half. And Square is no more. Its name officially changes to Block Today, in a move the company says will reflect its focus on new technologies like the blockchain. They will keep their current ticker SQ, kind of like a Broadcom of Algo situation. Uh, its shares, regardless, are down 38% from their recent high, and Block is down 3% today. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. A congressional report on drug pricing is slamming the pharmaceutical industry. A three-year investigation claims that drug makers increase prices to meet revenue and profit goals. They're also accused of abusing patent protections to fend off generic drug competition. One of a handful of drivers who have won the Indianapolis 500 four times has died. Al Unser dominated his first Indy win in 1970. He won his last in 1987 at the age of 47. He is still the race's oldest winner. Al Unser dead at the age of 82. And in Stockholm, this year's Nobel laureates were honored in a ceremony that was curtailed due to the pandemic. Winners in many categories received their awards earlier this week. The audience numbered just 250 people. That is a fifth of the size of previous years. And tonight on the news, students sounding the alarm and possibly preventing a mass shooting. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back. Yeah, that is quite a story, Rahel. Thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Coming up, FedEx, Lennar, and Rivian all out with results next week. We'll tackle each name and the key things you need to know in earnings exchange. Before we head to break, take a look at some of the social media stocks down today, but actually having a pretty good week. Twitter on pace to snap an eight-week losing streak, its longest stretch since 2014. Snap is having its best week since September, and Pinterest on track to snap a four-week losing streak of its own. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back, everyone. It's time for Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade, and some big names set to report results. We're going to focus on next week and spend all weekend thinking about it. On deck today are Lennar, FedEx, and Rivian. Let's kick things off with Lennar. It reports Wednesday, and the street is expecting earnings of a little more than $4 a share on $8.2 billion in sales. It's the second biggest U.S. home builder. They're expected to build around 18,000 new units as the housing boom continues. Shares today hitting an all-time high. They're up more than 50% this year. But of course, they've got a lot of headwinds to deal with as well on the labor and supply front. Joining me with the story on Lennar is Diana Olick, alongside Chantico Global CEO and CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez, who is here to give us our trades today. Welcome to you both. All right, Diana, Lennar, is this seen as a bellwether for the housing industry? Uh, well, yeah, Lennar and Dr. Horton specifically, we've already heard from Dr. Horton, but with Lennar, we're going to be looking specifically at what you said that is that supply chain issue because we saw both Dr. Horton and Lennar talking about having to slow sales because of issues with supply chain and they didn't want to sell homes that they wouldn't be able to deliver on time. We're also going to be laser focused on home prices. Why? Because inflation. If they have inflation on the goods they need to build the house, they're going to pass that on to the consumer. We saw Toll Brothers report an extremely high jump in the average price per home in their last quarter. So we'll be watching that as well as demand. We saw really unusually high demand this fall from buyers. We want to know if that's going to continue, if they're seeing people coming through the units uh, in December and what that will mean for the next quarter going into January. Gina, Kelly. we just showed that Lennar's forward PE is eight. And I'm thinking is, is what that that can't possibly there must be something wacky going on there. I mean, tell me how you think the stock is valued <clears throat> and if you'd be a buyer. So I think that that is, obviously that's well under what its long-term valuation should be. Um, and if you look at the market right now, you know, Diana's right that, that there is a very, very strong demand, partially because there isn't enough supply. And there are lots of headwinds. Uh, what is going to happen to, to, uh, you know, to interest rates is a big fly in the ointment. However, the fact is, is that there's still a tremendous amount of demand that Lennar is coming into. And so that valuation just shouldn't be that low. Right now, it's trading like a value stock um, into some, some headwinds, but also some very strong demand. So you're bullish, Gina, it sounds like, on its prospects. Diana, what else? I mean, commentary, um, you know, I'm trying to think, like, what, what else people should have in mind as they prepare for the report next week? Well, interestingly, Lennar is very into innovation, and they've been selling off some of their investments into smaller companies. You know, they were an investor in Open Door. That's the iBuyer program. And, you know, I spoke with the CEO, Stuart Miller, recently about the whole situation with Zillow and with the iBuyer market. So I'd be interesting to see if there's anything in there about spinning off any of their other companies or if there are any perhaps new investments in innovation that they might be doing. We saw their announcement to build 3D homes coming up this spring. So you always have to wait for Lennar to come up with something new and that that could be one thing to watch that's a great point and with lumber back on the rise maybe i'll have to address that a little bit as well diana thank you we appreciate it diana olick gina sticks around let's talk some fedex now they're expected to report eps of four dollars and 28 cents for the second quarter now, they blamed last quarter's weak results on labor shortages and supply chain disruptions. And to add insult to injury, Amazon's shipping chief this week said they'll overtake FedEx and competitors as America's largest shipper by next year. And it has been a tough year for FedEx. It's down more than 5% since January. Bob Bassani is here with the story. It should be the best of times for, uh, for FedEx, Bob, but not so much. 
Yeah, and that's what you just mentioned. The problem has been the cost. Now, remember, FedEx is very tricky because of the way their earnings is set up. November is their end of their quarter, but their actual peak business is in December. So it's a little tricky for them giving guidance. They got clobbered. You see that drop there? They got clobbered the last two quarters on the higher costs. They're trying, remember, to go to the seven-day delivery schedule, and they've incurred higher costs around that. Then COVID and supply chain issues, of course, affected them as well. So everybody's focused on how are they going to control costs better. So they're talking about a lot more automation. That's what people want to hear about. They're talking about drone technology. They're talking about buying uh, new planes to make the fleet uh, more efficient. They're going to hire something like 90,000 workers uh, in the next uh, for, for this month, essentially. So that's going to be the big question. Can you handle it? So this is the conundrum for them. The cost, the highest cost they incur are right now, October, November, preparing for peak uh, volume in December. So they're going to get all the big revenues in December, but they have to lay out all these costs in October and November. So let's hear what they have to say about how well they're keeping those costs down. Great point. And it still trades at less than a 12 times forward PE. Gina, would you be a buyer of the stock? So we actually own this stock at Lido Advisors. And one of the reasons, yes, there's a lot of short-term bearish news on the, the sort of having to suck up all of those investments now. Um, but they're also making investments into the long term. And what they've also shown is that they have tremendous brand value. They've been able to pass those costs on through to customers. Um, and that this is the this has been the litmus test over the last three months as to whether or not companies can pass their brand value on and pass those prices through. And they're showing that they can. And the investments that they're making into their e-commerce platform and their direct, uh, you know, buyer, uh, direct company to buyer uh, uh, platform, those investments will pay off over time. And the e-commerce story is not going away. So we think FedEx actually has uh, an interesting long-term story. I wonder sometimes, Gina, about Amazon, because it seems to have some businesses with a lot of warts that are um, given the benefit of the, the halo effect that it has from other fast-growing businesses like Amazon Web Services. You know, here they are about to become the number one player, but it's obvious from anybody with two eyes they don't operate more efficiently than FedEx or than UPS. Maybe they save a little margin because they don't have to pay it out. But I just wonder about is it a blessing or a curse to be, you know, so, sort of have primacy in this business over time? You know, I think that, that FedEx is going to flex its brand value and its quality control along with its efficiency. And they're obviously, they're strong logistics. This is their business. Uh, and, and this was not Amazon's business. So, you know, that's really where, where the war is going to be held is in that last mile delivery. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move along uh, from FedEx now to Rivian, uh, one of the hottest stocks in the market, usually one of the biggest names searched on our website every day. Analysts are expecting a loss of about $12, 12, cent, 12 cents or tw is it $12 a share? Holy cow. Uh, all right, $12 a share in its first report since going public. They have yet to make a profit, but are expecting to gain traction and be a real threat in the EV space in the year ahead. They're expected to deliver a total of 20,000 vehicles this year. Double that next year. Shares are up more than 40% since the IPO. Bob Bassani, I'll go back to you for more on this one. It's obviously all about the delivery numbers, right? Yeah, uh, it's a wing and a prayer story. It's based on the uh, the story that EVs are inevitable, and this com this company has some particular first mover advantages, perhaps uh, even over Tesla. So the the story is pretty simple. They're targeting SUV SUVs, and they're targeting light trucks. Uh, that's a very interesting market to target. They also have uh, some people feel a first mover advantage in commercial 
electric vehicle vans. That's a very interesting space to work in. So they're not just doing mass-produced cars. They have a very targeted, specific audience uh, that they're looking at. They're also vertically integrated. They've got manufacturing, powertrain, uh, in-house software, in-house batteries as well. That's a big advantage as well. They're going to control the whole uh, supply chain. Just don't ask me about the valuation. You mentioned 120. This went to 180 a little while ago. It's back down to 120. They're wow. going to lose money not just this year. They're going to mo lose money probably for the next several years. So nobody's you know, doing any uh, PE multiples uh, on this company. And it came down along with all of the other speculative tech stocks. So there you go. The question isn't whether they're going to do well. They'll do fine. It's like all, even Kathy Wood's criteria, she's right, the direction is right, disruptive technology, but how much are you willing to pay for it? That's what people are debating right now. Yeah. And remember, 180 a, few, a little while ago, now down to 120. 112, uh, as we talk here, I think 106 was its opening price sorry. that day. Gina, the truck is getting rave reviews. So for sure, this is a, a, a beautifully made vehicle. Would you be a buyer of the stock? No, we're staying far away from this, Kelly. I mean, if you look at the outlook at it, relative to where Tesla came out, when they came out, nobody was really kind of invested in making EV stocks. Now everybody is invested in making EV stocks. You have Volkswagen, you have Ford, you have, you know, Toyota. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot more uh, competition, at least in the mass market. Now, I agree with Bob that the commercial space, they could definitely have a first mover advantage. But Ford is basically flexing their muscles on brands you know. You know, Ford F-150 EV is going to be a, a killer in the market. And so, you know, I think that, that the valuation just cannot be supported knowing that there are so many traditional makers that are basically flexing into this space yeah, really hard. Absolutely. So staying away from it now, there are $12 loss. That is on a gap basis, and a company always you know, kind of wants to strip it out differently. Uh, but still, deliveries will be something everyone's watching for next week, uh, and perhaps reviews as more of those pile in as well. Gina, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Gina Sanchez. Bob Asani, we really appreciate your time today Great. as well. Meantime, the residential solar stocks have been under pressure lately, and California could deal them yet another blow. We will explain why right after this. Welcome back. California is considering rolling back a key incentive for solar customers, and it's weighing on the solar stocks. Pippa Stevens is here with that story. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, a lot is at stake here, and it all comes down to a policy called net energy metering. This is when solar-powered homes and businesses are credited for the power they send back to the grid. The policy has been key to rooftop solar's growth in California, where there are now more than 1.3 million systems installed. And the state is divided about what these incentives should look like going forward. A number of parties submitted proposals to the commission for consideration, and they vary widely. At the simplest, the three largest utility companies want to cut the rate they pay for that excess solar and also add monthly charges for resi solar customers. They say current policies unfairly shift grid costs onto those without solar panels. The California Solar and Storage Association has called for a gradual decrease in the credit. They say the utilities proposal would be sudden death for the industry because it substantially increases the payback period for a solar system, which is when how long it takes you to make back that initial installation cost because of your lowered electricity 
electric bills. Amid this uncertainty, residential solar stocks have come under pressure, with names like Sunrun, Sonova, and SunPower all down more than 20% in the last month. Now, the proposed decision could come as soon as today. It will then be followed by a comment period with the final outcome expected early next year. A lot going on here, Kelly. It's fascinating because we always expect California to be going more aggressively towards incentivizing things like renewables. But in this case, they're pulling back. Maybe because renewables have made such inroads, they don't really need that kind of support anymore. It feels like a good thing in the long run for the industry, a sign of their success, even if it's a short-term headwind. Do we know how the commission's likely to rule? Yeah, there are a lot of different opinions here, and everyone has very compelling data points that illustrate their point and a lot of polarizing views. So, the expectation is that there will be some decrease in that net metering rate, but the proposal is very widely about just how much it is. And some people say the utilities proposal kind of, you know, was shooting for the stars and aiming for the moon. And so any middle ground would still be detrimental for the industry. But there are a lot of questions. Uh, we'll get this proposed decision and then the entire commission will vote on it uh, later next year. So uh, a lot of questions until then, some uncertainty for the stocks going forward. And absolutely for anyone right now trying to make that decision, a huge change in the calculus. Pippa, thank you very much. Pippa Stevens reporting. Coming up, between COVID concerns, rising costs, and higher wages, restaurants can't seem to catch a break. The name's inflation is hitting hardest next. And remember, you can catch the show anytime, any, whoa, it's like me next to me, uh, by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. While you're there, be sure to check out my new Conversations with Kelly. Deeper dives on topics in the market right now, like energy, the metaverse, you name it. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just follow the Exchange. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. November's jump in inflation is mostly thanks to surging prices in energy, shelter, and food. Combine that with wage inflation, and the restaurants are really feeling some pain these days. Kate Rogers is here with a look at some of the most affected names so far. Kate? Well, Kelly, no one is safe from inflation, and it's come up on every earnings call this season. What is interesting, though, are the names that consumers seem to be willing to pay a bit more for. Fast food and QSR names a bit better positioned here, even with rising wages. Chipotle says it's well positioned to handle rising costs, and it's flexing some pricing power as executives express confidence in protecting margins moving ahead. McDonald's also said it increased its prices around 6%, saw no consumer pullback there. Shake Shack CEO Randy Garuti also said inflation in both commodity prices and labor are pressuring the company's margins, but executives also think that they have some additional room to run. This sentiment was echoed by Yum! Brands as well. Another interesting name that consumers seem to be willing to pay a bit more for is Sweetgreen. Placer analysis puts it in the top five of major QSRs ahead of McDonald's and Chipotle for average unit volumes of about $3 million per store, average checks for consumers of about $15. Despite that, though, the stock down over 15% this month. The casual dining names, not so luckily, nearly all getting hit by investors pulling back in the last six months. Take a look at Dine Brands, Brinker, Denny's, Cheesecake Factory, and Texas Roadhouse. Many have raised prices, pivoted to delivery, or even launched some virtual brands. But you can't get away from the fact that a lot of these are just sit-down dining names. All in, they can be pricier. And if costs are going up across the board, consumers might not be willing to pay more, Kelly. It's very interesting about Sweetgreen. I always see it next to the luxury wing in malls, and they know exactly mm-hmm. who their customer is. Kate, thank you. Delivery costs, food costs, supply costs, labor costs, all of these inflationary pressures the restaurant industry is facing, and investors are obviously taking notice. While the S&P is up 5% over the past three months, the restaurant chains like Texas Roadhouse, Cheesecake Factory, Bloomin, and Brinker, they're going the other way with declines of 4% or more. Is there more pain ahead as consumers try to deal with price hikes, and how can investors 
decide which brands are most susceptible. Joining me now is Andy Barish. She's an analyst at Jefferies. Andy, it's great to see you. What names do you think are best positioned? I don't know if Sweet Green is one that you would cover. Yeah, we do not, Kelly. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, we, we actually look at the casual dining category as one where there really is a lot of opportunity. And it, it goes back uh, really to what happened during the pandemic when a lot of capacity um, in competing small chains and independents was taken out um, by the pandemic. And the casual dining brands that uh, were able to pivot, uh, like a lot of the bigger chains, uh, benefited from that and were able to uh, increase sales through an incremental layer of off, uh, off-premise sales. So actually the top line's been really quite good. And um, clearly uh, today, you know, the question has been uh, costs and margins and, um, um, you know, happy to discuss that a little bit more as we move forward here. You're pretty positive still on companies like Brinker, Bloomin', Cheesecake Factory, Texas Roadhouse. Why is that? I mean, it would seem to me that, you know, maybe a couple of them can do well. A couple of the others have perhaps been a little bit weaker, maybe like a brinker. Um, explain why for all of them you're still pretty bullish. Yeah, because um, we think the the calendar third quarter earnings reports were really the bottom in terms of the negativity on uh, margins and cost pressures. And a lot of companies had not taken significant pricing yet, including brinker, which was only running about a half a point of price, as well as Bloomin, which was uh, really hadn't taken pricing in over two years and now has um, subsequently taken an additional three points of new pricing increases. Um, Texas Roadhouse, as you mentioned, um, is not one of our favorites because of the beef exposure. And I think that's going to be a commodity that will continue to be pressured for a longer period of time while we think the 3Q and 4Q here will be kind of the peak in inflationary pressures and some of the transitory costs associated with supply chain for a lot of these casual dining restaurants. That's a good point about beef. That's interesting. Tell me about uh, Darden, a parent company of Olive Garden Red Lobster. You seem to be more neutral on that one as well. Yeah, the, the big difference, uh, Darden's a, a, you know, a terrific company, very well managed, the largest in terms of using its size and scale, which obviously um, filters down to supply chain and their ability to procure product at the best prices across their their multiple brands in the portfolio. They've also come up with some really um, noticeable productivity improvements during the pandemic from trimming menu items and streamlining processes and procedures. Uh, and I think their, their, um, their quarter that will report it uh, actually at the end of next week will be a solid one. I just don't think um, there's any additional near-term catalyst given the valuation is roughly 11 times or so forward year EBITDA, EBITDA when a couple of the other buy-rated names that I mentioned earlier, like Blumen and Brinker, are at half those multiples at around five or five and a half times. Mm. And of course, as soon as I say it, I remember that Red Lobster hasn't been part of Darden in about eight years now, <laughs> but I'll always think of it that way. Quickly on Starbucks, which just had that uh, unionization vote, how much does that impact your view on the shares? Not, not at all, to be honest with you. I mean, it, it was surprising that um, it was a company that, um, you know, has really been one of the most progressive and forward thinking employers in this industry uh, since the get go um, and has recently announced um, on their um, September quarter call, their fiscal fourth quarter call, that they were making another billion dollars in additional investment in their 
in their team members um, as we move uh, forward here in fiscal 22, including uh, getting all starting wages to $15 an hour, uh, taking wage increases starting in January for tenured employees, and then also um, uh, committing to having a $17 average wage by the summer of 2022, in addition to all the other benefits and, and growth opportunities that Starbucks provides, I actually think they're one of the better uh, position companies in terms of attracting and retaining uh, team members to continue the, the phenomenal recovery they've had in sales as well as growing new units. But obviously, uh, there are some, some of those team members um, that didn't feel that way and felt they, they had to go another route to, uh, to get their voice heard. But I, I don't think it's going to be a widespread phenomena for Starbucks or the industry for that matter. All right. We'll leave it there. Andy Barish, bullish on the restaurant space, broadly speaking. We appreciate it. Thank you so Thanks, much. Kelly. Coming up, last weekend's Bitcoin crash triggering investors to sell and sending prices down about 10% into this week. But just who is throwing in the towel on crypto may surprise you. We'll tell you that next. Welcome back. The price of Bitcoin falling more than 27% over the past month. Kate Rooney here now with a look at who is selling out. They're going to be blackballed, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, that's right. So the bulk of the selling appears to be coming from some of these short-term buyers. Uh, They appear to be throwing in the towel at these levels. And short-term meaning that they bought in the last few months here. They're not those who have been holding for more than three months. They are the newer buyers here Bitcoin has been trading below what they call the average cost basis for these investors or the prices where most of them got in. Right now, that average cost basis is around $53,000. That's according to Glassnode. And there's something called the short-term holder SOPR. So analysts have really been watching that lately. It measures the profitability of coins when they're sold. So right now, it's showing a lot more Bitcoin being sold below the price where it was bought. So at a loss, these are the least profitable levels we've seen in six months. Glassnode analysts call this a hallmark of capitulation by newer buyers. They also say, quote, this group appears to be the only cohort reacting significantly to the events of the last week, while more mature holders remain unmoved, they say. And those who are spending coins appear to be predominantly those who bought at the top, and they are realizing some of those losses and capitulating. As for those longer-term holders, Kelly, They're sometimes described as the smart money here. There's been a lot less activity by that group lately at these prices. And finally, the big-time investors who hold more than $10 million worth of Bitcoin. They're called whales often, and that number uh, of so-called whale wallets has dropped since early November. But the total supply held by that top 1% has continued to increase. They appear to be accumulating more coins. That's according to data from Genesis and coin metrics. Kelly. Yeah, it's always sort of subliminally this idea of was it the people who got in early and kind of the public who's able to benefit or is it now just people who can lock up supply and make this kind of the uh, the worst version, I guess, of, of hoarding. Um, I thought it was interesting what you said about the SOPR and all. there's there's so many different metrics that are kind of this crypto world's version of the stuff that we're more used to uh, in terms of technicals and fundamentals. But you can't do the usual stuff when it comes to crypto. Right. It's interesting. You can watch it. They call this on-chain analytics, but you can watch the movement of a lot of different Bitcoin. You can't tell who's necessarily selling it. There's no name attached, but you can see the number. And it's an interesting way to analyze uh, 
this because it really is a completely new asset class and some of the old school metrics for stocks don't necessarily work. So there's other sort of leading indicators that analysts tend to watch here. I can also imagine this is welcome news to those who think there was too much speculation um, for people who got in more recently. But at the same time, most of the people who are who were in it early would think that Bitcoin has a lot more room to run, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the leverage has been flushed out. So that's one thing it has been. It's really now stuck at this $48,000 level. That's the one level that I mentioned in terms of the cost basis where people have gotten in. That's a line that analysts are watching. And they say if it can recover above 53,000, that might change sentiment. That really is a key number here to watch and uh, something analysts have been watching. But otherwise, a lot of folks underwater here at these prices. All right. We're still about five grand below that level. Kate, thank you so much. As always, we appreciate it. Kate Rooney. And thanks for tuning into The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.